Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I appreciate the song that was just led. As we consider our Lord, we consider our God, we consider all of the faithfulness that He has displayed to us, the greatest example of that is in the perfect offering of His Son. And this morning, Jesus is ready to be your counselor. Jesus is ready to be your Savior. And Jesus is ready to be the Lord and ruler of your life. And if you have found yourself not in submission to his lordship and his authority, I hope and pray by the end of this lesson this morning you will understand the great blessings that come from a life in submission to our Holy Father. And this week we have had a wonderful time of fellowship. We've had a wonderful time of worshiping God together. We've been built up in our faith through the songs that we've sung, uh, hopefully through the teaching and the message. I know at least the first half of the week that was true. I hope the second half is, has been edifying to you as well. But even more than that, it's just the relationships and the connection that we see and all of the conversations that we have had this week leading us into a deeper relationship with God and into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with one another. And we leave tomorrow morning from Plainview, Texas, my family and I, built up and strengthened in our faith. And we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come and, and labor among you. And I know I can speak for Brother Jim and, and Brother Timothy as well that we get a lot of thank yous. We get a lot of compliments. It's, we thank you because this recharges us and gives us a great amount of hope and encouragement of what's going on in the kingdom of God all over our country and ultimately all over this world. This morning, we want to consider God's faithfulness as we continue with this idea that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, where it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to notice there are some things that this faithfulness of God creates for us and in that idea of fellowship. And fellowship, it talks about the relationships that we have with one another, and I think there's an important aspect that sometimes we forget that we, as diverse as we might be, have a lot of things in common. And this morning, the, one of the greatest things we have in common is that all of us have been broken before God, but if we have been cleansed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and obedience to that, that He has brought us together in this collective, in this body, to where we can gain strength and encouragement from one another as we testify to the powerful forgiveness of God. And I know we have talked in uh, passing ways this week about forgiveness. And, and Brother Jim had an awesome lesson talking about Joseph and, you know, the question of whether we're going to be a forgiving type of people. And I want to build upon that idea and really go into the depth of not our forgiveness of others, but the forgiveness of God. Because we wouldn't know what forgiveness is or, or how to replicate or model forgiveness if it wasn't for the wonderful and amazing forgiveness that we experience with our Creator. And that Creator who spoke all things into existence desires to have an intimate, personal relationship with you, and He understands full well the only way for that to happen is for us to be a partaker of glory and holiness. And he understands that in our physical, human, carnal state, we can't achieve that on our own. But he has made a path through his son and the sacrifice of Christ to bring about full forgiveness. And forgiveness is powerful. Forgiveness sets the stage for rebuilding of relationships. The forgiveness of God opened that door for us to be in that reconciled state with Him. That what was lost in the garden could be fully restored. And the same is true as we examine our forgiveness of one another and even the forgiveness of ourselves from the past life of sin. You know, we have an example in the New Testament of an individual who teaches and gives us a lot of instruction about this idea of the forgiveness of God. 
And there was a magnificent transformation that took place within the life of this individual. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul used his testimony and his example numerous times as we read throughout the pages of the New Testament to exemplify and testify the glorious forgiveness that God gave to him. And he wasn't boasting of himself that he had accomplished anything, but he was deflecting that glory to the amazing forgiveness that God had bestowed upon him. And then his response to that forgiveness was what? Was that he would be a proclaimer of that gospel to all those that would hear. And you and I are no different. As we examine our relationships and we are in relationship with God, that forgiveness has to be at the center of those relationships. Notice what Paul says in Acts chapter 26, beginning of verse 15. He's giving his testimony and is uh, talking about his experience on that road to Damascus as Saul of Tarsus. And as he sees Jesus and he's blinded, he's humbled, he's, he's brought low, he recognizes the one who is speaking to him. It says, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, notice what he says that they will receive, forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You see, Paul here as Saul of Tarsus was given a new identity. He was given a new purpose. He was given a new mission. But all of that mission and all of that purpose started with his own forgiveness. And we know he went into that city of Damascus. He found a man named Ananias who told him all things that he needed to do. And Ananias told him what? And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And from that time on, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who at one time persecuted the church, consenting to the death of Christians, all of a sudden became a bearer of light to those who were in darkness. Do you think he had a powerful testimony to share? as being transformed in that instant in his relationship with God and the confirmation of the things that Jesus had revealed to him and the new mission and purpose that he had in our lives are no different because we serve a God who is a God of forgiveness. He's a God that restores. And not only does he forgive, I want to tell you, he's anxious to forgive. He is waiting and ready and willing, calling us to seek the forgiveness from our sins. In Micah chapter 7, beginning of verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Sometimes we have this aspect or this mindset toward God that he's, he's angry and, and he just wants to punish us. I want to see God punishes sin because he's a just God, but God's desire is to be merciful. God, what he wants to do is receive us as a loving father and, and forgive us of those sins and forgive us of those iniquities that have separated us from him. And he's anxious to be that kind of God to us because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. Notice that he will again. Micah says he will again have compassion on us. Why is he saying the word again? Because what did Israel struggle with? Did they struggle with rebellion? Did they struggle with sin? Did they struggle with this idea that they continually repeated the same behavior over and over? And what does Micah say? He will again have compassion on us. God doesn't reach a point in his forgiveness where he says, okay, I'm done. There's no more opportunity for you. No matter how many times we slip, no matter how many times we fall, no matter how many times we give in to that sin, God is able and willing to forgive. And we better be thankful for that. Because in this flesh, we struggle and fight against sin. He says, and we'll subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Do you understand the imagery of what this prophet is writing? That God, in his infinite power, knowledge, wisdom, everything that God is, and his perfection, says, I can take your sin. I can take the iniquity that you know is in your mind of past things that you have done and things that you're going to do, and guess what I can do with that sin? I can separate it from you. I can cast it into the depth of the sea that it no longer appears before my sight. And therefore, I, as a holy God, can have a relationship with you because when I look at you, I don't see the sin any longer and there's no debt. I'll tell you, I'm glad that God releases me of my debt of sin. Because without that, I could not have a relationship with Him. Without Him, I wouldn't know mercy. I wouldn't know compassion. I wouldn't know love. And my life would be a wreck filled with guilt and shame and bitterness and anger. But through forgiveness, all of that can be changed. And God is powerful enough to forget our sins. Here's the truth. We're not. <laughs> you ever done something and you knew it was wrong? Don't raise your hands because I know everybody has. And you've prayed for forgiveness. You, you may have even come forward seeking forgiveness from the congregation and, and needing that experience of having those things acknowledged in a public sense and, and wanting that forgiveness and restoration. But then the next day you wake up and what's the first thing that pops in your mind? That very thing that you just sought forgiveness of. Does that mean you're still guilty of that? No. But does it mean that our minds weren't designed to forget? Yeah. And at the end of the lesson, we're going to look at the dangers of those who truly push the sin of their past and their current sin out of their head and never think about it again. Because notice what Paul does. Paul uses his past life of sin over and over. He doesn't forget it in the sense that it never crosses his mind but when he forgets it, as we're going to look at, he understands that that's not how God identifies him any longer. And that's because there's a process that has to happen of a transformed mind. Romans 12 and verse 2, the instruction given is, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the purpose of that renewal is that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, God calls us to be transformed so that others can witness the glorious forgiveness of God and that God can change a vile, ugly, nasty sinner into a vessel of honor that glorifies Him and that He is pleased with. And you and I have to be partakers of this transformation process. Notice Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 13. Paul writes, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was an humble man. One who had prior authority a lot of power. He says, I do not count myself to it. Hey, I'm not there yet. And he understood that, that in that flesh, and, and you read other passages that, that Paul writes in the book of Romans where he talks about that in his flesh there was no good thing. And he talks about that battle between the flesh and the spirit and, and the conclusion of that thought is what? Oh, wretched man that I am. He didn't say, oh, wretched man that I was. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, because he understood that in the flesh, life's hard, and sin is ever-present, and temptation is all around. And he says, you know what? I'm not perfect yet. I've not fully apprehended this. If the Apostle Paul were to walk in among us, that would be a miracle. <laughs> but would any of us question him and say, well, Paul, you're really not the, the Christian you need to be? But he humbles and says, I'm not fully there yet. And the purpose of him sharing that is to encourage us that in this flesh, we're never fully going to get there. But he says, but one thing I do is what? Forgetting those things which are 
behind. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about forgetting those things which are behind? I want to contend this morning that he does not mean that those things and sins of his past never come up in his mind. But what Paul understands is that former identity of his where he was convicted as a sinner before a holy and righteous God is no longer his standing with God. And he was able to embrace the liberty and freedom in which Christ gave to him, not in perfecting him in this body, in this life, but allowing him no longer to define himself by the sins of his past. And how many of us want to be free from defining ourselves from our past sins? Then, brethren, we better be forgiving of others and allow them to do the same thing. Who was Paul? Earlier in Philippians 3, he's describing himself. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He said, I was a Hebrew of the... If there was a Jewish man who was living by that law, doing their best, and they were zealous toward God in this obedience to what it meant to be a Hebrew, it was me. And I think of the Saul of Tarsus at that time as kind of the man that all the other moms and dads would look at and say, I want my young boy to grow up and be like Saul. Man, he's a dedicated Hebrew. He's contending for God. He's zealous. He's working hard. He knows the law. He's studied. He's well-versed. He's able to teach and, and correct others who aren't being obedient to that law. Notice Acts 22 and verse 3 again, giving defense of his ministry. He says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Galatians 1 and 14, he says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So let's really examine who this Saul of Tarsus was. He was circumcised the eighth day, uh, eighth day a pure Jew of the, the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, and educated by Gamaliel, who was respected and on the Sanhedrin, a, a zealous in his service to God, and he knew and he kept the law of God, and he was probably on that fast track to being one of the highest-ranking officials within the Jewish nation. That's who he was. Do you think he took pride in that? Do you think that was a pretty good identity for a man in the Jewish community? Yeah. But you know what he said about all that after he met Christ? Forgetting those things which are behind. You see, his idea of forgetting those things which are behind wasn't just the sin that he had committed. It was a totally different identity that he had to take on. And even the things that weren't necessarily negative or wrong at one time in his life had to change. Because what do we learn in the New Testament? That in Christ, all things are made new. And he had to lay down this other identity to pick up something that was much more valuable. There again in Philippians 3, now verses 7 through 11, listen to what he says about that identity. He says, but what things were gained to me? What's he talking about? All these things. All these things that had defined who he was before Christ. All the things that had profited him in his life and made him successful to that point. He says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I, I, I'm willing to lay those things aside so that I might have Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, the New King James uses the word rubbish. The King James says dung. I'm a King James guy, especially when it comes to this verse. <laughs> I think the word dung is very powerful. I mean, you think about what he's saying. He's saying all those things that... Others would look at that, that give me a very high-ranking place in, in who I am and even in my relationship with all these things when I met Jesus, they don't matter anymore. 
And I count them, but dung, they're rubbish, they're garbage, they're trash. Because Christ gives me something better. And the reason people really don't have a wholesale change in their life today is they don't value the forgiveness of God and what that forgiveness can do in their life. Notice verse 9, And be found in him not having my own righteousness. See, what was all this? That was his righteousness. He's being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. Do you know Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus? And I'm not talking about the perception of Jesus. I'm not talking about the Jesus we create in our mind. Do you want to know the essence of the Son of God? You really want to dive in and pour yourself into him and him pour himself into you, that you have that deep-rooted relationship that when you look and examine your life, you can honestly say, there's nothing else that defines me. Because the only thing that matters is that Christ is here and his presence is with me and I'm serving him. Everything else is okay, but that's what defines my identity in him. That's what Paul wanted. That's what he had. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He said, because that's all that matters. We've worked with a wonderful group of young people. I want to tell you, I've talked with them and I've said, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? What are the things you want to do in life? And, and they have goals. <laughs> they have an idea of what they want their life to look like. But let me encourage all of us to make sure that the top priority in our life, in our existence, is that we will be a partaker of that resurrection. And that we live in such a way that as this body decays and dies, when Christ returns and He brings the spirits with Him, that our body is raised from that grave, reunited with Him, and glorified forever. Because in the end of life, that's all that matters. Everything else can be a great distraction. And Paul said that's what defined him. I want to cover with you five things I believe we must forget in order to attain life with Christ. Number one is that old identity. And when I say old identity, I mean what is it that motivates that old man? And at the heart of that old man is one thing, pride. That I am the ruler and maker of my destiny. I'm the one who controls every aspect of what I will do, what I will think, and what I will say. Isaiah 14 gives us a, a great reminder, and I know this is a prophecy against the ruler of Babylon, and in that is uh, a lot of... Uh, language that can be applied even to, to Lucifer or, or that angel that fell from heaven and the reason for that fall. But here's the point of this passage is every sin and everything that separates us from God starts with that idea of a false identity and pride. That we know better than God and we don't have to submit to His rules and His life and we know better what we need. And notice this prophecy against this ruler and he says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken to the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of earth. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This individual didn't exalt themselves above God. They simply wanted to be like him. What was the first temptation given to man? When that serpent tempted Eve to eat of that fruit, what did he tell her? God knows in the day you eat this fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. See, it's not necessarily an exaltation above God, but even trying to place ourselves at an even level with God 
is so prideful and arrogant of a frail creation and its foolishness. And we all need to be reminded that old man needs to be crucified. That old man needs to be destroyed. That old prideful, egotistical self has to be put to death. And the only way to do that is be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when we're buried with him in baptism, we're buried into his death, we're a partaker in that suffering, and we arise to walk in the newness of life. And Romans 6 tells us that that body of sin is destroyed. That old prideful, sinful, self-focused individual can be destroyed and a new identity can be provided. Number two, we got to forget the pleasures of our past. I've had the, the great opportunity this summer to work with a number of these young people at different meetings through the summer. And there's something we've talked a lot about, and I've said, is sin fun? And I love their reaction. I said, okay, don't lie. Is sin fun? Yeah. It's ple- the Bible says it's pleasurable for a season. For a moment... And we enjoy that pleasure. You see, God calls us not to focus on the immediate gratification of that pleasure that that sin can provide to us, but think, what are the long-term effects of this sin on my life? What are the consequences of me participating in this activity or being around these people who are doing these things? What's it going to do to me spiritually? And and if I'm striving to pursue holiness, as we talked about last night, what's it going to do to challenge me in that? That's going to be a hindrance to me. But you know, as we get older and we embrace that forgiveness, sometimes Satan's wise. And Satan will appeal to us, don't you remember how fun those days were? And before I became a Christian, I had a lot of fun in sin. But as I said, I was broken and I didn't even realize it. And now I have a heightened awareness to sin. But even in that, there is an appeal that that sin may have been pleasurable. we got to lay that aside. And we got to really think of the consequences and the gravity of our sin, especially as God's people who've been renewed and changed. There ought to be such a sensitivity to the gravity of sin that it prevents us from slipping back into those old habits. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 As we see God's instruction and call to holiness, notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. This is not easy. You have to put in the work. You have to prepare yourself to be holy. And it's going to be hard. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves in the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So that past life sometimes may seem pleasurable. You know, God's people struggled with that in in Israel. You know when they struggled with it? This passage in Numbers chapter 11 And it makes me smile because it's so indicative of us and humanity. In Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, God's people were murmuring and complaining. You know what they were complaining about? They had been emancipated from their slavery. They were free. But you know what? They were hungry and they were thirsty. And that hunger and thirst, God satisfied. He gave them manna that they would go out every morning and collect enough for that day, and then the next morning, what would God do? He'd provide more manna, they'd go and collect it. God took care of their needs. But at some point, that wasn't good enough for them. And look at their mentality. Numbers 11 and verse 4 says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, oh, and the garlic. It was so good. 
The food we enjoyed in Egypt, it was amazing. Who's going to feed us now? But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna. This miserable, dry manna that God has faithfully provided every day for us to sustain us. That's all we get. You know what they're saying? They were longing for that past life, thinking about the food and the pleasures, not understanding, you want to go be a slave again? Isn't that foolish? Oh, you want to go and enjoy all those pleasurable things and put yourself back into bondage as a slave? When God has given you liberty and freedom and delivered you from that and is leading you to a promised land that's much better? And yeah, that dried manna may not be the fish and the garlic and the melons, but you know what? It's by the hand of God. And we ought to be thankful for that. But they were so longing for the very thing that God had delivered them from because they were only focused on the pleasures and not what that sin had laid in store as consequences for their life. And we do the same things. That's why we're given this instruction in Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also, listen, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. I think it's important for us to remember how depraved we were without Christ. Because if we truly try to push that out of our head and never think of it again, it makes us unrelatable to this world. But if we acknowledge it, and we remember the great power, the deliverance of Christ from that sin, we'll be humble enough to say, you know, I once was that, but no more. And that's a great testimony that we can be to this world as we teach them about Christ. Number three, we must forgive and forget the sins and failures of others. Jesus gives this teaching in Matthew chapter 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You know, we logically know this. And when we're struggling with a concept of forgiving someone of something that they've done against us, we, we quote this verse. And we know at a utilitarian level that if I want God to forgive me, I've got to forgive other people. But like we do with a lot of other things pertaining to our relationship with God, we quote that verse and in our mind say, okay, I forgive him, I check it off my list. But I really don't allow them back in to my life. I want you to reflect upon the forgiveness of God. I believe the prodigal son that he describes is that picture of, of the forgiveness of God. And in that account or in that teaching of Jesus, you know, sometimes we're the prodigal son. We're the one who goes and wastes our life and wakes up at rock bottom and says, I got to go back, hopefully. Sometimes we're the other brother who, who wonders, where's my party? I've been a faithful son. I've served you, Father. Why are you not celebrating me? And, and this, your son has come back and, and you're celebrating. What about me? Sometimes we're that brother. But you know who God always is? in that parable? He's the Father. And that Father saw His Son returning from afar off, and when He saw Him, He ran to Him, He embraced Him, and He prepared that feast and celebrated the return of His Son. That's how God forgives every time. And I'm thankful he forgives that way. 
I'm thankful that He doesn't look at my sin and the things that I've done wrong, even against other people. And when I sincerely repent and I'm seeking that forgiveness, I'm glad He doesn't say, okay, you're forgiven, but I don't want to have anything to do with you again. And I'm going to keep you at arm's length. Because you know what? You hurt me. I'll tell you, every time we sin, we hurt God. Just as when our children sin... It hurts us as parents, doesn't it? And it doesn't hurt us because it just hurts our feelings. It hurts us because we understand the consequences that that sin might have in their existence in their life. And our Father in heaven is grieved by our sin. And when he sees that repentant heart that turns to him, he's ready and he's running toward us, receiving us. He doesn't keep us at a distance. That would be a miserable existence, wouldn't it? To know that God is telling me I'm forgiven, but he's not really taking me back. He's not really embracing me. He's not really allowing me to have a relationship, but just believe you're forgiven and stay over there. I'm not saying it's easy, but it wasn't easy for God either. And guess what it cost God to forgive you? It cost His Son. I think that was difficult for Him to watch, to see the travail of His soul to hear his son cry out, Father, if there be any other way. Don't you think the father wanted, I wish there was another way. But he said, as hard as this is, we're going to commit ourselves to doing what's necessary to redeem this people. And I want to encourage all of us, when someone sins against us, we need to have that same mentality toward them as we want God to have toward us when we repent and come back to Him. 1 Peter 4 and 8 says, And above all things have fervent love for one... Fervent love. <laughs> Not just telling someone you love them. You ever heard somebody tell you, Oh, I love you, and you're like, I don't really think so. <laughs> I don't know. You know, certain people, when they say they love you and they embrace you, you're like, Man, you really do love me. Because <laughs> it's Fervent. It's evident. They don't even have to tell you that they love you. Now, husbands, you need to tell your wives you love them. <laughs> they need to hear that validation. But wives feel loved by looking at the things that he does for you and feel that security. I want to tell you, love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't just cover the sins of the one who is violated against us. It actually continues to cover our sins. And when we're dealing with our need to forgive someone else, let the first reflection be of the forgiveness God has given to you and I, and it will help us receive that person who has harmed us back as a brother or sister in Christ. Number four, we've got to forget, forget our, our past sufferings. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul writes, Unless I should be exalted by measure... By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure concerning this thing, I, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, this thorn in the flesh was something that irritated Paul. And for a time, it dominated his mind, didn't it? Whatever this thorn of the flesh was, it was something that was on the top of his list when he prayed to God, remove this. I, I, I can't stand this suffering. Please, Lord, don't allow this to stay. Take it away. And he besought the Lord three times. And after that third time, the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. And then what did Paul do? He found contentment in the suffering. You know, he no longer defined himself as having a thorn in the flesh. He said, In this thorn in the flesh, it's bringing glory and honor to Christ. He didn't dwell on the suffering. He didn't dwell on the grief. He didn't dwell on the pain. But he laid it at the feet of Jesus and said, I'll bear that, and I'm going to go serve him. See, when we let grief and sorrow and pain and those things continue to be what defines us, it 
disables us from being productive members in his kingdom. And I'm not saying there's not a time for grief. And I shared with you the other night, I, I lost my mom at 15. I'm 43 years old. I'll tell you, there's days I wake up and I hurt. <laughs> All these years later. And that pain is still real. And for a time in my life, that pain is what I wore as that defined who I was. And now I'm reminded, you know, I can handle that. I can deal with that. And yes, it hurts me. It breaks my heart. It causes tears and, and sorrow. But that's not who I am anymore. And we have to be willing to lay those things aside and that suffering aside and embrace the overall goodness of the plan of God. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we referenced the other night, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be made the firstborn among many brethren. The last thing that I believe we have to forget to embrace the new identity in Christ, to fully understand and experience the forgiveness of God is our own past sins. Remember what Micah said in Micah 17, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? The end of that passage of verse 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you believe God? When Micah writes this about the nature of our God, do you believe him? Do you trust him? That He can do that with our past sin? That He is powerful enough to separate us from it and to give us a new identity with it? Do you believe it? You see, oftentimes I hear this, and, and, and then we struggle with it as well. This idea that, well, I can never forgive myself for the things I've done. You ever done something so bad that you felt like, I can never forgive myself? You know, the Bible never instructs us to forgive ourselves. And I believe there's a good reason why, because I think that's an impossible task. Because when we sin against God, who holds the debt against us? Not us, Him. And if He, through His mercy and grace and the sacrifice of Christ, is willing to mercifully forgive us of that debt... What authority do we have to hold that debt against ourselves? That's not a biblical concept. Think about it this way. The greatest two commands were what? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, your fellow man. But how many times do you say, well, before I can love anybody else, I've got to love myself? No, you love yourself plenty because every time I talk to you, you talk about you. <laughs> you love yourself. We get that. God says love him and love your fellow man doesn't command you to love yourself, nor is there a command to forgive yourself, because you can't. Because when you sin, you don't sin against yourself, you sin against a holy and righteous God, and you sin against other people. Hebrews 8 and 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What we're really saying when we say I can't forgive myself is I don't trust God. That's dangerous, isn't it? To not trust that God is exactly who He says He is and that He won't uphold the covenant and the promises that He's made to forgive us of our sins. The reality is this, God can forget and though we're not designed to forget, we still have to accept and know and have that knowledge that He has released that debt against us. Therefore, I have to live. Because I have been forgiven and set free. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through the faith and the working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. When we're baptized into Jesus, there's an operation that God performs in the removal of sin from this, lot, this body. Do you have confidence in that? Do you trust Him in that? Well, if you don't, you just got wet. 
But if you place your trust and faith in that operation and the power of what he was performing, then you're made new. The same is true when we need continued forgiveness from God from the sins that we commit. We have to trust in his forgiveness and embrace that liberty and not try to hold things against us that we have no authority or place to hold against ourselves. Notice in Psalm 51, David is writing about his sin. You know how long it had been since his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah by the time he writes the 51st Psalm? About a year. A year later. And what's he say about that sin? He's asking God, purge me from this sin. Restore me. And he says what? My sin is ever before me. He didn't forget it and then he's, as if he never thought about it anymore. You know why? Because as human beings, we're not designed to forget. You know what that's called when we forget things? It's called amnesia. <laughs> it's not normal. <laughs> we're designed to remember. I'm going to tell you there's three reasons why we're designed to remember. Number one, if we forgot, then we couldn't testify the goodness of God. You ever think about that? The reason we can testify the goodness of God is we remember our sin and what his power was able to do for us through that. And without the remembrance of sin, we can't testify to that goodness. I work with a number of people who suffer with mental illness and have for a number of years at different facilities, and it drives me insane. I better be careful saying that. Um, <laughs> makes me a little upset in my mind when, when I see advertisements for medication and there's a new drug that the world will promote for, for depression. And if you really listen carefully or you read the fine print, it says two-thirds of users continue to experience symptoms of depression. Sign me up. I got a one in three shot. This might work. I'm not saying don't ever take medication. I'm just saying even they acknowledge there's not a perfect answer that they have. But you know what will forgive sin and shame and guilt every time? The blood of Christ. But we have to have confidence in that. And we have to trust in God's promises. Number two, if we truly forgot our sin, we would not remember the consequences and the pain of sin. And guess what we do? We just keep doing it. Could you imagine if we forgot the effects of fire? And we burned our hand, but then we forgot. And then we just burned our hand again and again. And we're walking around all crispy people because we forgot the dangers of fire. And, and we said, man, I just don't understand what's happening. I just keep touching this thing. It just keeps lighting my hand on fire. And I just keep burning up. I don't, I don't understand because I forget every time I do it. I don't remember. You see, when we forget our sin, we forget the consequences of sin. And God wants us to remember and the pain of that should be even more so after my eyes have been enlightened to the truth. And I ought to have a heightened sensitivity to sin that I don't want to participate in that because I know the pain associated with it and I want to be different. So don't try to forget your sin because you'll forget its consequences. And number three, if we truly forgot our sin, we couldn't celebrate victories. And brethren... We're horrible at celebrating victories. Oh, we're really good at pointing out sin. <laughs> we're really good at beating ourselves up. But let's glorify God and thank Him for the victories. <laughs> let's acknowledge what an awesome and amazing being He is to take weak, feeble flesh and make us glorious members of His body. And celebrate those victories together and find that encouragement. And I want to tell you, if we'll do these five things and we'll lay aside the old identity and the pleasures of our past, the sins and failures of us, we'll, we'll move past our suffering and, and those labels that we want to wear and we'll truly let go of the past of our own sins, we'll be different. And we'll have a new focus. Paul said he forgot those things and reached forward toward those things which are ahead. And he said, I press toward the goal for the prize. Peter writes it this way 
in 2 Peter chapter 3, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. You see, we've got to shift our focus. And when Paul said he was forgetting those things which are behind, they were no longer the focus of his existence because he had something better to walk toward. And this morning, I want to encourage you, you can have a new life and a better aim for the outcome of your existence with God. And if you've never been forgiven of your sins, and that sin is dominating your heart and your mind, and that's your identity with God, you've never experienced the forgiveness of those sins, then you're just like Saul of Tarsus was as he talked to Ananias. And he had met Jesus, he had prayed, he had fasted, he had had that experience, and he finds Ananias and says, what is it the Lord has told you to tell me to do? And the reality was whatever Ananias told him to do, he was going to do it because he trusted God. And that message to Saul that day was, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You want forgiveness, you want freedom of sins, come to the blood. Be buried with your Lord in baptism and arise to walk in newness of life. And then after that, let's all walk in the light. And walking in the light is not perfectness. It's not sinlessness on our part. But it's an effort. And it's a heart that desires and pursues after God and His righteousness. And as we struggle and stumble into sin and, and fight that old man... You know, the blood of Christ continually washes and cleanses us. Because sanctification is a lifelong process. Oh, He justifies the sin and the account of sin that's against us, but that sanctification process is a lifetime of change. And what we do is when we sin, we get up, we repent, we find comfort among God's people. Because if you come forward this morning seeking forgiveness of sins, needing to be buried with your Lord in baptism, you're not alone. There's a building full of people here this morning that experience the same thing. And if you're still struggling with sin, you're still struggling to put away one of those things we talked about we have to forget, I want to tell you, you're not alone. You may be the only one that walks down the aisle, but you're not alone. Because all of us are simply doing the best we can to walk in the light. And the great thing about God's people is we're open and honest with each other about our struggles. And if we're not, we need to. Because that open, honest transparency that makes a difference in people's hearts. And this morning, if you need the Lord to forgive you, if you need to lay aside your own past and your own sin and trust in the forgiveness of God, or if you need to truly in your heart forgive someone else, you've got a building full of people that will help you. And most importantly, you have a faithful God in heaven who is looking down tenderly, waiting for you to come. Come this morning as we stand and sing.